Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a hat trick podcast. Oh, you're I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favorite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us and often still has us in its thrall. Welcome to Twice Upon a Time, Jacqueline Wilson. And to say that you are a children's writer is to really underplay who you are because your books have been made into films and television series and they've been set to music. But more importantly, of all the many, many books you've written, they have been absolutely adored by millions of children. And as a parent, I'm extremely grateful for your output. As a writer, I envy you. And my inner child says thank you too. Your books are extraordinary, Jacqueline. And which book have you chosen for us? I've chosen Mary Poppins because I did think Noel Stretfield, but you've had somebody talking about a Noel Stretfield book. And then I thought Inesbit and blow me, <laughs> you've had somebody else talking about Inesbit. So let me take a punt on Mary Poppins, which was definitely in my top five children's books and still is. How old were you when you first read it? I think I was about seven or eight, and um, I didn't actually get to read Mary Poppins itself first. My mum bought me, I think for my birthday, Mary Poppins in the Park, which I adored. And then I went to the local library, and I love libraries, and they're wonderful. But the worst thing is, you have a thing in your head, particularly as a child, you must get this book. And of course, it was never on the shelves. So I read all the Mary Poppins books backwards. (laughs) And I read uh, Mary Poppins Comes Back. And then at last, I still remember the moment, sort of looking at Tifa Travis, and there it was, Mary Poppins. I think it has to be actually the best. I kept it out for a long time, took it back, and then almost immediately took it out again. It's been a joy for me as an adult who loves secondhand bookshops to get my own copy of it. It's just a book I've read my daughter and she loved it to bits. And I think it's rather sad that so many people, almost everybody apart from me, has seen the film. And yet very few people read Mary Poppins itself. Apart from one or two hiccups, I think it still stands the time flying and different ideas that we have about what Absolutely. should be in a children's book. We'll get we'll get to some of those possible hiccups yes. later, I think. But um, I'm intrigued that you got it from the library and you took it back and then you got it out again. But did you not buy books yourself when you were a child? No, we, we didn't have much money. I had a book for my birthday and a book for Christmas. And we went on holiday once a year for a week in Clacton. And often I got a book then. 
But that was it. It's so funny now because parents are so keen for their children to read. In my day, it was more get your head out the book and do something useful. So the library was my favourite and most hallowed place. Indeed, that is possibly why I'm such a ridiculous book buyer now. I, I have probably more books now in my home than that library had. And I've managed to acquire all the books that I adored as a child so that whenever the fancy takes me, I can read them or maybe if they're not too precious a copy, you know, let some visiting child take them away. And it's lovely. Love that, the Jacqueline Wilson Library. Yes. That's, that's pretty special. Um, were books prominent at home then or were books not around? Um, my parents had an unopened collection of Jane Austen, which I think they'd had as a wedding present. And they went in for rather lurid paperbacks. Uh, my mum had a terrible taste for things like, I don't know, <laughs> the chariot. No, not the charioteers. What was it? Some, some dreadful book that unnerved me when I secretly read it. Uh, <laughs> perhaps better not on a podcast about children's books that I don't say what it actually was. And my dad was more a Hammond in his James Bond type reader. So they didn't mind me reading, but it wasn't like books were the most important thing for them. I always got quite annoyed when as an adult growing up, campaigners said, you know, we why on earth do we have this ridiculous list of the canons of children's literature or, or all literature. And I was very grateful to them because I could find out for myself what was considered great, have a read. I could be quite opinionated and think, well, I don't like this very much. But it's useful because if you grow up in a household without too many books, you don't really know what's what. And even in the library, I don't think the Kingston on Thames Public Library in my day, long, long ago, ever dreamt of having a special children's librarian. There was just a rather scary lady. I mean, perfectly polite, but not gentle. <laughs> Perhaps a bit of a Mary Poppins herself. And it was definitely shush, be quiet, and have you wiped your shoes on the mat as you come in. I didn't mind in the slightest. I didn't want to chatter and rush around. I just wanted to stand in a corner and, and look at this book and that book. Before long, they did let me take out more than two or whatever because they knew I would look after them and bring them back. That reminds me of a librarian's past of mine who I now think are twinned with doctors' receptionists as custodians <laughs> of that which is beyond. There must be a special examination. Can you be fierce enough? <laughs> did you have brothers and sisters? No, I was an only child. Not a lonely child, though. I like my own company. I mean, I, I wasn't... Poor Jackie, no mates at all. I mean, I had friends at school, but I lived quite far away from my primary school. Um, so I didn't play with local children. So I loved playing imaginary games. I was very independent and adored books and read them again and again. Did you have a special place in the house where you would go to read? Um, I read in bed. I liked reading in bed, both early in the morning and then lounging in school holidays, last thing at night. There were lots of illustrations of children lying on their tummies with one leg up. 
absorbed in their books. And I rather fancied that posture, but unfortunately it was very uncomfy. And then I begged for a hammock because other people lazed in the summer afternoons in hammocks in books. And bearing in mind, I lived in a council flat with just a very small balcony, but my parents did buy me a hammock. And the only trouble was, if you tried to swing it, you went bonk on one side and bonk on the other. And it was very uncomfortable. So, But no matter where, I could get absorbed in a book. As a sidebar, when I read Swallows and Amazons, I imagined that the first time I got into a small boat, I would be able to sail immediately. And <laughs> I can tell you that is not the case for me. Um, I love the fact that you read the, the sequels in reverse order, because often sequels can be disappointing, but you kind of got to the top of the mountain by reading Mary Poppins last. Well, it helps in that as far as I remember, Mary Poppins arrives at the beginning of each book and therefore it wasn't really a surprise to me that there she was at the very initial book where she was actually first employed as a nanny. The word nanny surprised me though because where I came from, nanny was what you called your grandma. But um, I didn't really mind in the slightest that the slight class differences. And even in my day, Mary Poppins was quite old fashioned. I rather delighted in the differences. It was so well told and such an exciting story. And Mary Poppins herself was such an interesting character because she wasn't entirely kind. And she was just a tiny bit menacing. Very vain. And uh, very vain. Oh, I adore it. In that she can't pass a shop window without looking to see whether she's got the roses in her hat that aren't going to be mistaken for common marigolds and her kids' shoes. But she can be extremely generous. And when in the last chapter, the little star child from the Seven Sisters comes down to earth to do her Christmas shopping, and Mary Poppins is so pleased that she's got these wonderful gloves, sort of gauntlets with fur around. And when Jane and Michael, the children, point out to Mary Poppins that this little girl, Maya, hasn't got any Christmas presents for herself, Mary Poppins actually gives her these gloves that mean so much to her. And you just think she's got such a kind nature when she wants. And she she flirts tremendously and is very kind to Bert the matchstick man. But, you know, the children... They know she's there. They know she looks after them. They adore her. But she's not gentle with them in the slightest. And when Michael, who's the younger of the two main children, asks her, is she going to stay and and keeps on badgering her at bedtime? She says, be quiet or I'll call a policeman. (laughs) Imagine anybody saying that to a child now. I think the fact that you've you've dipped into episodes further into the book betrays one aspect of Mary Poppins by P.L. Travers that is fairly obvious in that there isn't really a plot as such, is there? No, but I think because each chapter has its own magical adventure, if you only have time to read in just one 15-minute gulp, that chapter works wonders. So I like this format. Can you sum up what the, the gist of it, what actually happens, where we arrive at with Mary? Mary Poppins arrives 
with a parrot-headed umbrella and carpet bag containing an unlikely and random amount of objects when she pulls them all out, even her own bed. When the, the Banks family, mother, father, Jane, Michael, the two older children, and then there's babies, John and Barbara, who are twins, when their other nanny has walked out, Mary Poppins is amazingly interesting and everything just sorts itself out when she's around. If she wants it to, she can cause havoc. They just have fantastic adventures that are exactly the sort of things that I feel children would love, like the laughing episode with Mary Poppins' uncle where... (laughs) He laughs, they laugh, and then they rise up to the ceiling. But it's done so cleverly in that when Mary Poppins, when they're all up at the ceiling, tells Jane to take a coat off or she'll get too hot, she takes it off but then lies it on the air. There are so many enchanting things in it and slightly scary things too. There's a Mrs. Corrie very small, beady-eyed lady. I like it that a lot of the older female characters are really interesting. They are powerful women. Uh, People are a little bit scared of them in some way. And as an older woman myself, I cheer that. And she has two sad, huge daughters that she treats as gormless lumps. The expression my mum used to use, and and she can be pretty sinister too. But she has this wonderful thing: you buy gingerbread from her, and then when she wants, her fingers become all sorts of candy canes and things, and you, you can bite them off if you want and eat them. And she says she likes it when they become peppermint because then she eats them for her digestion when she can't sleep. I mean, there's so many details that. I just adore it. So at the very end, when Mary Poppins goes, when the wind has changed, you feel as almost as bereft as the children. But there is a lovely message that she will be coming back sometime, which, of course, is a very clever ploy because immediately you want, if you're right, a children to clamour for the next book and the next. Those pictures are vivid, but the, the actual illustrations, which are synonymous with the book now, they're so distinctive. I was intrigued to discover her by Mary Shepherd, and she's E.H. Shepherd's daughter, and he was asked to do it but was too busy. But um, Peel Travers had seen a Christmas card that his daughter had illustrated and asked her to do the illustrations instead. Which was lovely, and I think they're superb illustrations, although there is a bit where somebody writing about Peel Travers saying that even with these wonderful illustrations, Peel Travers got a bit huffy and saying, because it's the text that matters, <laughs> which, you know, I've had two main delightful illustrators in my life. And I'm always willing actually to change my text because I think the illustrations <laughs> are very important in Jordan's book, but not Pamela Travers. But then she was she, formidable herself. She, was she not? certainly was. And, and to set the scene, this is, this is Cherry Tree Lane. And um, the family ensconced in it. It's the most dilapidated house in the road. But the father has said to Mrs. Banks, well, you can either have a nice house or four children. <laughs> she chooses four children. Nevertheless, they employ Mrs. Brill, the cook, uh, Ellen, the maid, and Robertson I, which is such a brilliant name, 
who, according to Mr. Banks, wastes his time and my money and is supposed to do things like fettling and cleaning shoes and often only cleans one. So already within a couple of pages, she's established very clearly who we are. And obviously there's the Admiral living further along the lane and later on we discover somebody else who lives there in a, in a suspiciously large house with two gates <laughs> of her very own. But you are, you are dropped into the story as suddenly as Mary Poppins arrives. And I, I think that's, with a children's book, it's lovely that because that's, that's what you want, isn't it? That immediacy and to discover secrets straight away. Yes. And the whole scene where she's up in the nursery and unpacking, giving them their medicine, the, the children, their, their eyes are boggling. Nothing like this has ever happened in their lives. There's hardly any passages that, I feel just don't chime absolutely perfectly. There's just one or two bits. She has the children thinking that because father works in a bank making money, that he literally makes money. And I think that's a twee adult thought rather than what children would really think. But I don't know, maybe they would think that. And then in the, the lovely chapter at the end, the Christmas shopping one, the children, I, I don't know how old they're meant to be. Jane, seven, eight? She plays Michael. about with that rather, doesn't she? she because does. at one point, Michael says he's really worried about going to school, which obviously puts him very young. Yes. But maybe that's a sort of 13 plus school, you know, where he might have to go to board. And at the moment, he's safely in his now, prep I, school. I think he is very young. I, I think they're I both think, little. I think... Certainly the sort of children that Pamela Travers was writing about probably were more articulate, expected to be in those days. But it's fascinating because they're so, so English. And I didn't know until I started reading about her that she was actually an Australian. They yes. didn't come here till she was 20 odd. So perhaps for her, in a way, Cherry Tree Lane and its wonderful upper middle class suburban air to it, you know, was fascinating for her too. There are so many ultra English references, aren't there? Yeah. When they leap into the picture, when, when Bert and Mary go into the picture that he's drawn, uh, she has raspberry jam sandwiches and he has whelks with a pin. You know, so, <laughs> but her parents were, I think, Scottish and Irish, weren't they, who demigrated to Australia. So I would imagine for her that, that the UK was almost a place of fable because if you grow up with your parents' impressions of something that as a child you can't fully understand... It might as well be a castle, you know, it yes. might as well be something utterly imaginary. I think we've both read a biography of her and I was fascinated but so sadly disappointed because I wanted her to be like Mary Poppins, um, but she was such a difficult woman in so many ways and I was so shocked when she decided almost like a woman thing, oh, I might fancy a little dog or something. She suddenly decided, oh, well, I'll have a baby <laughs> and goes to this family. And there are twin boys of six months old who've never been separated and adore each other. And she won't take them both. And she just waits cold-bloodedly to see which one is the best behaved <laughs> and the best looking and says, I'll have that one. And doesn't tell him that he's adopted until his twin tracks him down when they're both 17. And this must have been such a shock. And that is a novel in itself. Two boys brought up in such different ways. Absolutely. You can just about get away with that sort of choice when you're choosing a puppy. And even that feels a little savage, yes. I have to say. But yeah, that is extraordinary, isn't it? And there are lots of telling references throughout the book to somebody who was always exploring her own 
in herself, really. I mean, she she was fascinated by Gurdjieff. She was fascinated by myth and magic. And at one point she says, everybody's got a fairyland of their own. And I think that transposed into this woman who, you know, I've, I've seen interviews with her. She She's daunting. She's daunting. And uh, no wonder um, Walt Disney was not able to get his own way straight away. I mean, that... I've seen the film Saving Mr. Banks, even though I haven't seen the actual Mary Poppins film. And I practically fell off my chair laughing at it. I share some of her reservations because it, the, the film doesn't seem to be just a spoonful of sugar. It's just barrel loads of it. And her problems with Let's Go Fly a Kite and it's Let's Go and Fly a Kite. And the bafflement of the huge Disney organisation. And I mean, there's a little bit of me that wishes I could channel my PL travellers. And <laughs> if there's anything I'm secretly not too thrilled about, actually say, now come along, <laughs> sort yourselves out. I think but, it would be a stretch for you. Honestly, <laughs> Jacqueline, I really do. It, it's not a, a good example. I mean, if you've got all the power in the world, then you can be a positive pain. But sadly, I don't think her old age sounded a happy one. She just sounded very lonely and very sad. Not really thrilled to bits that she'd invented Mary Poppins. I tried to read her other book that she wrote, Friend Monkey, about all the different myths and legends that she was very interested in. But I'm afraid it didn't hold me past the first chapter. And it's often the way, isn't it? The character that people know you by. I think she really got a little bit tired of. Yes. Although she, she sort of claimed that Mary Poppins arrived at hers rather than inventing her and did not want to answer questions about how she thought her stories up. Yeah. Well, <laughs> people always seem to think that writers base a particular character on someone rather than actually having made them up. Certainly, there are little bits, I would imagine, of different people that she's known or even bits of herself. But she does, on the whole, seem to be a magical creature that just arrives and then disappears. And that's that. Well, I, I have seen the film and I've seen it several times. And one of my children was pretty addicted to it. So I was constantly coming into yeah. them to find them playing it to themselves. And it's really hard, in a way, to go back to the book now because there is... So much left out for a start. Yes. He was very selective about what was and wasn't included. But then I read some of the chapters, the whole episode with the dancing cow. I'm not sure now that you would make no. the decision to include it. No, although I think one thing that could have been fun in a Disney film, because it almost is an echo of Lady and the Tramp, it's when Miss Lark's very cosseted pedigree dog, Andrew. It's a brilliant name for a dog, isn't yes. it? <laughs> adores this scruffy mongrel who's king of all the wild dogs and then insists that they can go and live together. Um, I mean, that would be absolutely perfect in, in a Disney film. But although I haven't seen the film simply because I love the book so much, I have seen the musical. I've seen it twice. And the musical does work well. But I didn't go and see it for that reason. I happen to be a huge fangirl of Petula Clark and she plays the bird woman wonderfully. And I looked it up and if the Google wasn't fibbing to me, she's still in it. She's 90. And she sang wonderfully. She does a little dance. She's just fantastic. And 
I'm particularly fond of her, not because she's a very talented woman, and this is nothing really to do with the book, but when I was a little girl, I was at a fashion show, which they had in department stores in that day, and she was a child star well, in her teens then, and she was sitting up at the front, and I got bored and couldn't see, so I wandered up. My mother was so absorbed in seeing all the frocks that she didn't notice. And Petula Clark leant down and said, hello, little thing, you know, um, come, come, sit here. And she sat me on her lap. Now, how many people can say they sat on Petula Clark's lap? One. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think it's one. So for, for her alone, I, I am a huge fan of the musical. Lovely, yeah. She was sort of, weirdly enough, she had the same sort of trajectory as Julie Andrews, who played Mary Poppins, of being... A child star with a remarkable voice, yes, almost yeah. an adult voice in a child's body, which they then luckily both grew into. With the the bird woman in the book, who famously you know is tuppence a bag for her. Uh, I was livid that in the film that's been saccharined up to a degree because Mary Poppins, in fact, doesn't like all the birds and and opines they should be in a pie. <laughs> so it's a very different interpretation, yes. isn't it? In fact, I think, I think she doesn't even deign to distinguish one bird from another. She just calls them all sparrows. Yes. <laughs> that, that's what I think makes her such an original character. Mary Poppins has got such confidence and it just wouldn't occur to her that, you know, she isn't the most supreme being ever. In whatever magic kingdom she's in, in amongst the animals or stars or wherever, she is the queen. And she can talk the language instantly, yes. so yes. she understands that Andrew the dog would rather not eat oysters regularly, <laughs> but wants to hang out with his scruffier friend and then eventually brings his scruffy friend home to live with Miss Lark with two gates. Yeah. But it is, it is fascinating, isn't it, that this book doesn't actually have a lovable central character. She's not. There's nothing about she's She doesn't really betray any affection. Everybody's incredibly fond no. of her. And yet the children, from the word go, adore her. Yes. Yes, that's maybe part of her magic. But maybe too, sometimes, long ago at school, it was the teachers that didn't sort of laugh and joke with you but you knew that they were there and solid and you could trust them and they always knew best. There was a reassurance about that that I think quite young children very much enjoy. And also there's one of Mary Shepard's illustrations in the book when they're going home. Mary Poppins is sitting upright, but both kits are sort of nestling into her. And, I mean, she doesn't push them away. She just lets them be there. And then when... Michael has been incredibly naughty in the Bad Tuesday episode. <laughs> when she's taught him a lesson, then she tucks him up in bed and gives him a, a cup of milk. And she doesn't go on about, oh, what a naughty boy you've been. But you can tell, yeah, she's quite fond of him, really, I hope. And one of the last images is Jane, when, after Mary Poppins has left, Jane tucks her brother into bed as well and says... Yes. Don't worry, darling. And that's the first time she's ever called him that, that's yes. for sure. And I mean, it, it's lovely to see brothers and sisters being realistic. And yet Jane in particular is a very loving older sister. And both children are very kind to the babies too. That again was a fascinating chapter for me because when Mary Poppins is in the nursery with the babies and they're just gurgling away. She can understand what they're saying, and they are discussing all sorts of things. And in, in a funny way, John 
saying, oh, yes, he sticks his legs up in the air because it does so amuse the, the grown-ups. And ever afterwards, watching babies together, I mean, of course, they can't possibly be communicating this sort of thing. And yet it does look as if they are. That whole chapter, I thought, was absolutely entrancing. It does not feature yes. at all in the film. And I think it's Barbara who says, you know, I'm going to make them happy now. I'm going to put my toe in my mouth because yes. I know they love that. <laughs> and they can also understand the visiting starling and what the wind is saying. But all the way through, there's this really ominous sort of ostinato beat of the fact they will lose that when they get older. And actually it happens with their first tooth, that they are just burbling and they can't understand each other and no one can understand them anymore. And there are hints of that all the way through, aren't there, of that the thing that you have as a child is the thing that you lose. And it's interesting reading it now from a perspective of I think we have quite an odd, ambivalent relationship with childhood. We want to absolutely contain it, but we also want it to move on very quickly so that by the time you're 13, you've left all that behind, yes, you know, no more yes. dolls, no more nothing. And she really puts her finger on that. And in fact, it's to do with that bad mood, isn't it, in Bad Tuesday? He's not cross about anything in particular. He just wakes up completely out of sorts. Yes. and. Who can't identify with that? Quite, it's just quite. all wrong. It's a profound book in its own way. I think that is what makes it so great in that it isn't just P.L. Travers thinking, right, what magic story can I do now? It sticks in the mind because the prose is really tight, descriptive, but not overly so you you race through it but you are learning a lot without realizing it as you go along anybody reading mary poppins even as an adult you wouldn't forget it people often ask me what my regular london pub is but that assumes there's a pub i can easily return to so please stop asking that London Pub Reviews, written by Paul Ewan and featuring Tim Key. A hat-trick podcast. Did you save my seat? Why? I'm at a completely different pub now, with different seats. Catch up. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Drinking with dignity. Yes, sir. Yes, madam. That's me all over. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Towards the end of the book, particularly the episodes where they're going around the world and then when they end up at the zoo out of hours and, in fact, the adults and babies and children end up in the cages, 
There are episodes of real profundity, and at one point one of the animals says to the children, the same substance composes us, we are all one, moving to the same end. And I rather suspect that reading it as a child, both of us didn't really notice that very much, but there it is. And it's interesting that now we are at last understanding that animals aren't there for us to tame or eat or whatever, and that they are beings with real needs and emotions and that it isn't necessarily in even in even in a horse's brain oh I want to be mastered (laughs) I want to be ridden if I don't fancy it I mean for women who had as far as I feel quite strange beliefs she also was very very in tune with things that perhaps would chime more now than it did then. I think so, yes. But then I think attitudes have changed to children's books because I don't think in 1930s, children's books were kept in their place. They were children's books. Whereas now I think children's books can be analysed, perhaps almost too much. But there are some that really, really earning their place in literature, even if it's Not quite, I don't know, Austen and Dickens. (laughs) What do you think makes a children's book a classic? I prefer books that have characters so real that you would recognise them out in the street. I think Noel Stretfield, writing about E. Nesbitt, once said, if you encountered the Bastable children from The Treasure Seekers on the top of the bus you would know them immediately. And if you get characters that are so real and so interesting, and then either a domestic story with some sort of plot to it or a magical story like this, then it works for me. I can appreciate why many fantasy books last so long because I don't think fantasy dates as quickly as books reflecting a certain time but it's the child characters and the adult characters that have to be totally realistic for me that matters most which is why you know Noel Stretfield and Inesbit are my heroines as such but I mean with Mary Poppins it's clear it's a fantasy right from the start And the main character is indeed very magical. But the children react in exactly the way that children would if this strange, slightly menacing, but fascinating woman came and was part of your life. That's almost breaking the fourth wall, isn't it? It's almost reaching out to children and saying, I'm going to show you the world, but it's okay." because we're very keen to protect children from a world they don't understand. But this book says, even if you're going to be whisked from your bed at night and taken round the world by someone who you've only just met, it is going to be all right. So there is a place of safety here as well. And I guess that's bound up with the recognisable characters, is that when you see something you recognise, you're automatically more at ease. I think in Mary Poppins, there's no terrifying chapter. But in Mary Poppins Comes Back, Jane is having a day when she's just out of sorts and fed up. I think it's maybe called Bad Wednesday, echoing that. And she gets absorbed into a china plate. Apparently, P.L. Clampers actually had this particular plate of a family 
And she's absolutely fed up with her own family and loves the decorous little children on this plate. And then she gets to go into the world of the plate and they lead her along. And it starts, she does it very cleverly indeed, it becomes more and more sinister. And then the children, it might be their grandfather, but he says, ah, you've come to join us and hmm, you're not going back, you know. And she seems absolutely stuck. And for a couple of paragraphs, that hair stands up on your arms thinking, oh, is she ever going to get out? And, and these people that she thought would be lovely are really sinister. But then, of course, you know, strong hand grabs her and she's whizzed out of this really scary world. And Mary Poppins has rescued her. And that was the one chapter that always hung about me particularly if I've ever looked at a decorated plate or something like that. It's a really nasty idea. And I suppose the chapters where where they are whisked around the world, and indeed the one where they go to the zoo out of hours, are slightly problematic from today's lens because it's it's not particularly um, culturally sensitive the way it's done. For its time, it's a positive view, but I so understand why... The, the modern version must I mean, I must have a peer actually and and see precisely how they do it because it's an interesting chapter and I'm sure it still remains in some way but quite a bit would have to be substituted well she rewrote the zoo one herself did she yes yes she was asked to for a subsequent publication but she didn't touch the the round the world episode which which leads me I mean the, this this particular copy I have is was published in seventy seven, and I would imagine that even by then it wasn't seen as as much of a problem as it might be yes. now. That, and she was very loath to do it. Very yes. loath to do it. I mean, the, this is the difficulty. I I tend to be a sitting on the fence person where this whole issue crops up because sometimes I think you know things are so perfect and they are of its time that why would you change it and you can always explain to children if they're puzzled or bewildered by something but on the other hand there are some attitudes that you just think "Mm, no (laughs) I don't think that that's quite right I mean I've been writing such a long time and I don't think I hope to goodness I haven't ever had anything that would utterly offend or upset anybody. But I know in the very first book I wrote, there's a little boy who is desperate to have a good birthday present. This is not a great work of literature. (laughs) It's long, long, long out of print and rightly so. But his sister is the hairdresser. His brother has a motorbike. They're all the old stereotypical ways that, that people should behave. And I would write that very differently now. Whereas in Mary Poppins, I don't think it matters that mother in the book seems to do nothing very much but go and see friends. I know in the film she's a suffragette or something. Yes, which... I didn't realise that, that uh, Disney had taken such liberties with the story. Yeah, so I think that sort of world is fine. But this is what's so strange. I mean, what would Mary Poppins herself look like if she came to our world now? Not sure she'd approve of things. Yeah, and actually B.L. Travers didn't approve. She thought Julie Andrews was too pretty. Did she? Yeah, she did, yeah. 
Well, that's better than saying, no, she looks a perfect fright. <laughs> it I is, yes. <laughs> a gormless lump. Um, it strikes me, though, that if, if you write for children, you are endlessly having to justify the fact that you write for children, whereas you can produce an adult book and people obviously want to talk to you about the themes and whatever, and, and that's perfectly yeah. pleasant in a, in a conversation at a book fair. But I suppose because the, the idea is that you are addressing these soft and malleable people, that you have a lifelong responsibility to them. And P.L. Travers says she finds that irksome. She, you know, that's, that's not why she wrote the book. And she does not like having to constantly defend it. I, I saw a brilliant interview with her, actually. I think it was for something like Nationwide Donkeys years ago. And the interviewer is sitting in an armchair in her room. She's in a rocking chair. And actually, that conveys a, a level of cool. I thought everybody should have a rocking chair for their interviews because it just makes her look slightly otherworldly, very much in charge and slightly frustrated with the pace of the rest of the world. Yes. It's very effective. I should have to try that. <laughs> but do you, get, do you get fed up with that too, the fact that you can't just have a book that somebody enjoys, you have to sort of drill down into it, and people are very keen to ask you why this and why that and why is it all so horrid? I have occasionally to be defensive about my books because somebody told me, I'm not on social media at all, that there was a running thing on TikTok about girls hopefully pretending that Jacqueline Wilson books traumatise her childhood. I hope they didn't. It would be appalling if they did. It really wasn't my mission to depress children. But I have written about things that were slightly controversial. The only times I've got irritated is when people say, oh, that Jacqueline Wilson, you know, sex and drugs. There's no sex in my books. There's no drug taking in my books. I think people have an idea of what books can be like. I, I feel I was very lucky to be born in my time so that I've been able to write the sort of books that I would have liked when I was a child. I think P.L. Travers, I mean, the 30s was exactly the right time for a Mary Poppins to come marching along. Before that, the world of Mabel Lucy Atwell and, and fairy twinkle toes and everything. There wasn't much bite in children's books, but these are like very tart apples that are very enjoyable. The vocabulary is easy to read and yet it's not deliberately made simplistic. I would find it very interesting if the original manuscript was still around to see how that had been edited. You'd have to be a very brave editor, though, to take on P.L. Travers. Did it just come just like that or did she have to work it? Because it's very clever. And when in about the second chapter, Mary Poppins has her day out with Bert and he does the portrait of her, that comes in so brilliantly right at the end. And it's a very lovely ending. It's yeah, she gives it to Jane, doesn't yes. she? He, Michael has the globe that's taken around the yeah. world. And yeah. then Jane tucks it in with him too and says, you know, you can share this darling. I mean, it's so carefully thought out. When you said about the language in the book, there's, what is it, stuff aging? When she says to Michael, stop stuff aging. And it's a Gallic word because obviously from her parents she got uh -huh. a word that she was not afraid to chuck in it means yes. dawdling by the way but I thought how lovely that again as a child reader I don't know about you but I would not stop to look up a word every time I got to a word you I didn't know. You just got the gist of it yes. didn't you yes. and I really rather liked it I mean sometimes I would appropriate a word in a school composition at primary school you know a teacher would sort of outline it with a question mark and say, no such word, or no, I think you've got this wrong. <laughs> but, you know, it just encourages you to 
extend your vocabulary. And I mean, nowadays, people don't say to children, look it up in the dictionary. How many children have a dictionary now? I mean, you know, you just look it up on Google and that's it. But uh, uh, I get very nostalgic over dictionaries and the words you find when you, you're trying to look something up and something else that diverts you. Me too. And the fact that there's a word for everything. Yes. So to limit vocabulary has always seemed to me an extraordinarily reductive thing by yeah. definition. Because your, your nickname at school was Jackie Daydream, <laughs> yes. wasn't it? <laughs> no, you titled your autobiography that. It seems to me, watching my grandchildren struggling with the, the effects of the national curriculum, that we have really cut daydreaming out of the syllabus. It's so sad. And in ordinary life. I mean, many lucky children get to go to dancing and judo and football and goodness knows what, or they have play dates now. I mean, a child's social life is so organised, whereas it never used to be like that. And you would sort of play with friends or wander off by yourself and sometimes just lie on your back staring up at the ceiling. And you might be saying you're bored, but actually, no, you're not. You're thinking of things and then you suddenly get an idea about what you might do. And in school, it's all hurry, hurry, hurry. I have to try to let myself remember this because I don't know, the older I get, the more prolific I seem to be. I can't seem to stop writing now. It's just a large chorus of people going, that's great, so don't worry about that. <laughs> ah, that would be lovely <laughs> if that were true. Um, and I feel... There has to be time to smell the roses and all of that. I mean, it helps that I have dogs and they get taken for several walks during the day because that is a good daydreaming time. If I'm at home or in the garden or whatever, there's always something that I feel I have to be doing work-wise or, or I'm, I'm reading a book and that is absorbing my attention. But I do think daydreaming is a very good time. I try to tell myself if I'm not sleeping very well and you're getting anxious about the time and everything, I just think to myself, well, it's your daydreaming time, only it's night dreaming now. And sometimes it does work in that you can put yourself almost in a trance early in the morning. That's when I like to write most because you're still in that slightly not quite wide awake. You're just doing things almost unconsciously and that's when the ideas flow. It's developing that inner life that I think is so important and also in some ways boredom is good for you because I get quite bewildered by young people now saying oh no I had to walk out of that job it was so boring and you think actually even the best job in the world can be boring yes. at times and you've just got to absorb yourself and get on with it. You have, but. yes. And you discover things about, I mean, it sounds so twee now, but you do discover things about yourself if you were able to, or restricted from doing anything, if you're able to do nothing, yes. it doesn't have to be constructive. I think that's the thing, isn't it? It doesn't have to be, you know, handing a child an instrument and saying, well, if you're bored, get to grade eight. You know, <laughs> actually, it's quite nice sometimes to not do much at all. Yes. I think that's a very positive thing. And, and when, when you began writing, you doubted whether or not anyone would read it and enjoy it. And, you know, and that seems to be from listening to, to any writer that there is that seed of self-doubt. But is that quietened now? Can you reach back through the years and reassure your younger self that actually this is going to work out? I can do that. 
Uh, however, reassuring myself now, my much older self, <laughs> is more of a problem. I think I'm a curious mixture of feeling insecure, but also with a strange confidence at the same time. I think it's a bit like acting too. I think both writers and actors are needy people. They need a lot of praise and reassurance. <laughs> They're not so much artists. They seem very happy just to do things their own way. But I think it's quite brave to start something off and you have to take away all thoughts of some child looking at it, flicking their eyes down the page and going, ah, oh, boring, and then putting it back on the shelf. I mean, that child in my mind comes in very useful when I'm rewriting because then when it's all down on, on the screen, not on paper now, sadly, then you've got to turn into a different person altogether and be quite strict with yourself and say, now, come on, you've got to have a better beginning than this. But when you're actually writing that first draft, I, I don't even go back and see what I've written the day before because you, you, your inner critic comes in and spoils it. So you've just got to be completely just in the moment. There's something that strikes me as being quite audacious, really, that you would write something and then slide it across a desk and say to somebody else, read it, because it reveals so much of you. Yes. I've only ever shown what I'm writing to two people in my life. First, it was my daughter who didn't even have to be told this. If I read her a bit of a book or asked her about it, she knew perfectly well to say, oh, it's lovely, I love it. She's a very accomplished fibber. But, <laughs> um, you know, she knew exactly what to say. However, my partner, very loving, very interested in my work, I made the huge mistake of showing her something and she felt she was really doing me a favour by pointing out the bit she didn't like. Never again. What a row we had. <laughs> so I think when by the time, I mean, I like to feel I'm professional and when it has to be edited and copy edited and goodness knows what, I can be cool headed then and sometimes I agree totally, sometimes I disagree and wonder if there's some way I can wiggle around to keep it my way of doing things. But it is a part of yourself that you're exposing. And it is as unnerving as if you were to stand in the middle of a shopping centre and suddenly strip off those terrible nightmares that you can have. You are showing bits of yourself you don't even realise that are there. And I was going to say, even with a children's book, but I think particularly with a children's book. And also, people always assume you're writing about yourself as a child. Well, in my case, imagine the traumatised childhood I would have had. Everything had happened to you. Pillar to post. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I had a, an odd childhood, but it certainly wasn't terrible. <laughs> Whatever it was, it made you porous so that you could absorb what might have happened and interpret it. The really interesting thing, just to finish, is that P.L. Travers obviously had written this, even in her lifetime, it was phenomenally successful and then it became a very successful film, however she felt about it. When she died, she didn't want anyone to know where her ashes were scattered because she didn't want it to become a place of pilgrimage for Mary Poppins fans, which I find extraordinary. Yes. I mean, I have to admit, God, what does it say about me? In my complete heyday, 
I did fantasize about a funeral with little girls in tears carrying white lilies or something. <laughs> uh, but uh, I rather think it, it's funny, as you get older, you don't really mind talking about death because it's quite interesting. You know, most people think, oh, for God's sake, stop being so morbid. <laughs> but um, I think cremation does seem the most sensible idea. But I would like to be kept in a very decorative jar, but with my nearest and dearest sort of, you know, hidden behind some books. So it's, I'm not there, you know, it's sort of peering upwards to see what people are doing. But the thing that I have begged my daughter to do when she will eventually inherit them, my daughter also has my mother in a jar. And I have said, will you promise me you won't put me in grandma's cupboard because I couldn't bear it having this terrible voice ticking me off for this or that through all eternity. So I'm going to have my own private cupboard, please. I still like the children with the lilies, though. So I think all you have to do, Jacqueline, is just write this down and then people have to do it. <laughs> so, yeah, start the list now. It's very effective. Uh, well, I've got a very decorative village that I live in. And sometimes when a particular reasonably well-known person in the village has died, the funeral directors do drive the person through the village so that people can look out and see. I don't think I want to go the whole hog with, you know, plumed horses and everything. I, I, I do. A nice black limousine would be good. but Fancy the horses. Oh, actually. well, well, you certainly will <laughs> cut a dash. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. What an enchanting discussion. Thank you for sharing your book, Joyce. Oh, it's been great fun. Thank you, Janet. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Twice Upon a Pod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton. And Twice Upon a Time is a hat-trick podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.